Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 20th, 2020, and my guest is economist and physician Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University, where he is professor of medicine, a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and director of the Stanford Center on the Demography of Health and Aging. Along with Martin Koldorf of Harvard and Sinetra Gupta of Oxford, Jay is the author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which lays out an agenda for how to deal with the pandemic, which as we record this piece in late November of 2020, it seems to be getting worse here in the United States and in other places as well. Jay, welcome to Econ Talk. Nice, nice to be here, Russ. Thanks for having me. Uh, what do you think we've learned about the pandemic so far? What do we know? There's a lot of things we don't know still, but what do you think we've learned? Uh, let, me, let me just, there's a lot we have learned, uh, but I want to cover just very briefly two things that are very, very important, I think, for policy uh, that, that we have learned. Um, so in the early days of the pandemic, we thought that the, the mortality rate, uh, you know, like the World Health Organization put out a, a number saying that the mortality, the case fatality rate was 3.4%. Uh, this panicked governments around the world. Uh, uh, there, there, there were similar estimates in places like the Journal of the Medical Association, same case fatality rate, looking at Chinese data, 2.2%, two, two, two uh, you know, 2 and two in a, two in 100 people dying from, from a disease is a, a very high number. Uh, and, um, and so the, the que- what, so the question was, is that actually right? Uh, something that I worked on in, in this uh, epidemic is to try to figure out how many people actually were infected because a case is not the same thing as an infection. An infection is uh, very often doesn't result in a case in the sense that, uh, you, you know, actually it turns out 30 to 40 percent of the people who get infected show no symptoms whatsoever. And they are very unlikely to show up at a doctor and become a case, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people get mild symptoms. Uh, it t- so it turns out, based on seroprevalence data, uh, which, is a, a, which is basically a study that looks at antibody levels in the population for evidence that, some, that an infection actually had happened, uh, that they were, uh, they were on the order, in the early days when there wasn't a ton of testing, somewhere on the order of 30 to 40 times more infections and cases around here actually in places like in india it was like a hundred or, or you know i think even kobe a hundred times more cases depending on the level of testing you get a different multiplier but um uh, it was basically the same kind of story everywhere many 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 more infections than cases um and that's still true today actually i think it's probably a multiplier in the united states something on the order of five now um because there's so much more testing but if you look and see what the death infection uh, survival rate implied by that is you get a really interesting story. Um, first, you find that this there's a very steep age gradient in the survival rate. People who are under 70, if you if not, there's not 50 some of these studies, so you can, you can criticize mine, but like, you know, now you're going to go after 49 other people. Um, you, th- there's, it, if you're under 70, uh, the infection survival rate is something like 99.95%. 99.95%. Under seven. Now it's it increases with age. With, I'm sorry, the, the, the survival rate decreases with age. So that if you're say you're say if you're 60, 60 it'll be something like uh, ninety nine point five or ninety nine point four. 
Um, if you're if not, not, or, or not, you're not, not 99 point, you could, might even be 99. Now, if you're over 70, the infection survival rate is much lower. It's 95%. So if you get sick, you're not 95% of the time you, you survive, 5% of the time you die. So a very steep age gradient. And we, I think we know that pretty well, that there's this steep age gradient survival. Um, for people who, let, let's say kids, uh, and actually let's say people under 30, the flu is actually worse in terms of mortality. Right? So there are more kids that have died of the flu this season than have died of COVID-19, more children in the United States. Can you comment? We're going to talk about this. We have to talk about this when we get to your to the declaration. But what about this fear that although the mortality rate is low, the long-term effects on who knows what, lung function, brain, kidney, people have suggested all kinds of uh, long-run impacts. And so a, a college student might get the virus survive even without hospitalization but have long-term damage to their to their body is there how how worrisome is that i mean it, it's um it's okay let me put it this way so like it, it, if you have the flu if you look at the flu the flu actually also has extra respiratory consequences right so uh like i tell, I tell this is a true story my, my child my, my my son when he was 10 years old got the flu despite having had the vaccine um and he woke up one morning unable to walk there are very rare consequences sometimes of the flu and also of the flu vaccine that are devastating, that result in muscular, you know, sort of all kinds of, I mean, I, I, as a medical student, you go through this, you read about these rare conditions, you're convinced you have them. That's what I went through with my son, right? So, yeah, and, and yeah. Uh, it turned out to be something called benign myositis, which resolves very, so within three days, he was up and walking just fine again. But for those three days, I was completely panicked, right? Um, so I, it's, it it's, wouldn't be surprising that this disease has some extra respiratory consequences. And in fact, it does, right? So it has, like, I think cardiomyopathy is someone, uh, there's, there's some neurologic conditions, uh, some, some, some clotting. Uh, the, 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 and, and I think it's very important that we study all of these things. And we are, we're studying all of these things, trying to understand them, how to, how to how sort of treat them and, and maybe, maybe ameliorate some of the damage from them. Um, uh, but at the same time, all, if you read the papers in that literature, they are terrible on the denominator. It seems really likely that these are going to be rare outcomes, just like they're rare outcomes with the flu. Um, and uh, we shouldn't be panicking people over things where there's still a lot of scientific uncertainty. And the, the, the most likely thing is that it's rare. So right now, we're in the middle of a so-called surge uh, you could argue it's the second or the third. It looks like the third to my eye. Cases are going through the roof. Uh, I'm more than aware that cases are not the same as deaths. I'm aware of the fact that today, because of better understanding of treatment, because of higher testing, because of um, who gets it now versus in the past, um, that's that the death rate is much, much lower relative to the case rate, not the infection rate, but the, but the case rate. What puzzles me, and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, what puzzles me is that why the death rate is as high as it is. So it's lower. But who is getting this now? Who, is, who, are, who are the people getting this now? How, and how are they getting it that it's still killing large numbers of people? And I, I have to say, that in my st casual look at the age distribution of death, uh, and I, I stopped looking at it about a month or so ago, but for almost the entire run, at least during that time, the, the first six months of the virus, the age distribution didn't change at all. 
all those numbers you were talking about, the mortality rate, the numbers have gone down for everybody who, who gets it. But it's still the case that the that the mortality rate uh, is very high for people over the age of, of 70 relative to people under the age of 70. And it's also true that it gets worse the older you get. 80 and above is worse. 90 and above are worse. And even though getting it is less of likely to kill you today, it's still the case that the deaths are in the older groups. How are people still getting exposed to it? What is going on there? I mean – is it multi-generational households where people are exposed without their uh, being able to protect themselves? Is it people going to work and coming back to those multi-generational house, households? Or is it nursing homes still struggling with this issue? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, – so uh, first, what you what you just said is exactly right. We, I mean, the, the, the death rates are very much focused on older, older people. Um, I think uh, there's been some, uh, some work, some really interesting work trying to characterize the risk characteristic of the population – and so if you have some chronic conditions, also, you might be at higher risk. Correct. But the single Correct. most important predictor for mortality, conditional infection is age and uh, really advanced age. Um, to, to my eye, uh, and what you, actually what you said about the, the mortality rate, conditional infection, even gets conditional on age going down. That's also true. Right. Uh, uh, so th- there's a few things there that I think we're going to tease apart. There's still a lot that I don't know. Uh, and I think no one no one really knows. So let me just, I'll give you my best uh you know what? What? What are my prior? My, where my thinking is now, but you know, obviously, <laughs> we'll see with as time goes on. Um, uh, so uh, the the um, uh, the the uh, so first, why has the infection survival rate improved, con- even conditional on age? I think in the early days of the disease, we we uh, we mean meaning doctors and uh, didn't really know how to manage the condition. We thought of it as a severe viral pneumonia, and not much else. We, we saw hypoxia and we started giving essentially ventilators to people that really shouldn't have had them. In effect, we killed people uh, iatrogenically with the ventilators. Um, uh, and uh, we, I, the other thing, we didn't really understand the, uh, the, the sort of the immunological uh, uh, reaction that results in very, very severe pneumonia. So, so, so for instance, I think that the, the use of dexamethasone, which is a steroid that, that suppresses sort of an excessive immune response has been sort of like it's, it's really helped a ton with managing patients. I think so in that sense, we kind of kind of learned much better how to manage patients with with a severe condition. Um, and so that's part of the story. Uh, part, part of the story about the, the decline in mortality is also that because we're testing more, we're identifying a lot more people with relatively mild cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. So I think there's sure. some of that as well. So there's some, there's some selection going on certainly. Uh, but I don't think that's all of it. I think it's partly, it is, we actually are better at treating it. Um, and now, uh, another, uh, let me return to your, your, the, really the root of your question is why is there still, are there a thousand people dying a day in the United States, right? Over a thousand heading towards, it looks like 2000. Um, who are, who are, who are these folks? So, so let, me, let me return to that. So I, I think, and this is, maybe this will be a good segue into the great parenting operation. I think the key thing, uh, for deciding whether a country or a state or a region has done well with the epidemic is that age distribution in the deaths? Because uh, if, a, if it's, it's, I think that's a function of policy, at least in part, right? So a policy that seeks to protect people. Now, I don't know the full answer to your question about what distribution is in, of, of people living in multi-generational homes, nursing homes, and so on. I think nursing homes are a pretty substantial part of it, but also people, you know, I think we see this like massive uh, inequality in the United States and who gets infected and who dies from it. Uh, that's, that's almost certainly we're asking 
essential poor people to be essential and go expose themselves um, to the disease because they have to work. Yeah, they have to work. Uh, whereas I, you know, fifty-two years old, I I can sit in my office and and, and not be exposed. It's, it's, it's I mean, I think um, uh, I think that's certainly part of it. Uh, that uh, so I, I think, um, but these are policy decisions, not just medical facts. So it, a country that does well, a region that does well, protects it, the vulnerable. Th- that's really the key thing. And that's the a key idea behind the, the Great Barrington Declaration is this, this idea of focus protection. We need to reorient our thinking about the disease to protect the vulnerable. Um, at the same time, we, we haven't talked about this yet, but I think it's going to be really important when we talk about the economics of this. Um, the lockdowns that we have engaged in uh, first the, the the severe quarantines and now the now the, the sort of the continuing lockdowns and the, the extensive set of lockdowns we're now currently re- reimposing, um, th- the, those have been extremely damaging for the population at large. Uh, not just in terms of money, but in terms of health. Oh, we talk a lot about the evidence on that uh, in, in a bit. I, I mean, I think it's overwhelming, and it's not just the United States. It's it's this has international consequences too. For basically, every poor person. In every poor country on the face of the earth has been devastated by these lockdowns. Um, and so I think, I think we have to sort of think about that as well when we're thinking about, because I think part of the uh, problem, and this is, a, this is, I think, a problem with economics, and economists have done, I mean, with some exceptions, uh, 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 that have done a very, very poor job of delineating the cost or the potential cost of this policy. It's probably the most single, most consequential policy that I've seen in my lifetime, that we an economic policy we've undertaken, yet economists have not engaged, as best I can tell, in it, it's in our only job, which is really to point out costs. Right? Isn't that our job description? And, and trade-offs. I would just say trade-offs. That that we've we've been extremely uh, quiet. I mean, you're an exception. I'm an exception. But in general, people don't seem to be talking about the fact that this is costly. That, that and it's not just a monetary cost. In particular, it's not a monetary cost. Partly a health cost, but it's more than a health cost. It's a Cost in despair. It's a cost in in loss of dignity, um, and and I so carry on. I, I frankly am thinking about giving up my economic license if I had one, but an economist license. But I, I you know, since we don't require a license to practice, it's 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 all good, I guess. Um, no, I, I mean it's been dispiriting actually to see economists not engage wholeheartedly. I, I think partly because you know this this is this is a medical thing, and people I, I think economists have been reluctant because it's it doesn't fit our area of expertise. Yeah. We're arguing with yeah. doctors and epidemiologists. Um, and so we, we sound crass when we do it. But I, I, don't, I think uh, we, should, we as economists have an obligation to point out these trade-offs for us. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and there are so many that need uh, that it's, it's beyond one or two people to, to point them out. I, 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 do, I really believe, I think this is the single most consequential economic policy decision in my lifetime. But let me pressure on that because I, I think there's, there's a temptation on the part of some of my friends who are like you worried about these other costs to confuse government mandates like schools are closed, uh, no restaurants, no concerts, no gatherings of over 25 people, et cetera. That's, that's a, uh, those are government policies. But there's also the personal response that people have voluntarily chosen. So even if it were uh, – I think it's legal to go to a bar in, in Maryland where I live right now. But I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go in. I, I would go outside. I would wear a mask. Much of the restrictions that people have, have are dealing with, which have economic consequences, are personal choices. Um, so I guess the way I would ask you to, to, to 
frame this is if, if you had been president of the United States in March, uh, would you have given a statement akin to what I understand Sweden did? What I understand Sweden did is they said, look, we're not going to close anything. Uh, it's up to you, citizens. Uh, be careful. Don't do anything stupid. Uh, don't crowd into a, a, a crowded venue without a mask. And uh, just especially if you're old and if you're old, stay home as much as you can. And if you can't stay home, find a way to get help so you don't have to go out. And, and do you think that's what we should have done? Because I don't think I think a lot of the costs of this pandemic have been the personal choices that people are, have made in, in, with, in the absence of full information. How do you feel about that? That distinction. Am, am I right? Yeah, no, I think I, I, I've written on that actually in the context of the H1N1 epidemic from 2009. I mean, I think that's a really, in fact, that's the sort of one of the key animating ideas of economic epidemiology is that people respond voluntarily to the risk they, they perceive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've been following this literature in, that, that economists have been having on what fraction of the economic harm from the pandemic is due to this sort of how much would have happened just because people responded versus and the estimates range from like 10% of the harm to 80% of the harm. I don't, I don't think there's any, any uh, consensus yet. It's a little wide. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> uh, let, let's, let's, let's even take the low end. I mean, I, I, well, for, for sake of discussion, we can even take the low end if you'd like and say 10%. Um, uh, so, so uh, I, I think uh, one, one, like sort of ch just a little tweak on this, on the way you've framed it, uh, Russ, the panic itself is a policy decision. It is. And it is. you can see it in the way you talk about Sweden, right? So um, I think Sweden in the early days did a very poor job, especially in Stockholm, protecting its nursing homes. That's why it had a very high death rate early on. Uh, later in the epidemic, it, it did this much more, let's give good risk communication to the population, describe things that you might do to protect yourself, uh, as best we can, and then let the population do, do what it wants. Um, uh, that's one approach. The other approach is the approach that I think the United States and many, many other countries took, which is essentially to say the world's on fire, stay inside, panic, This is you're, you're going to die if you go out. Uh, I think this has had a, a huge, I mean, that's a policy decision, right? So it, in a sense, the economic literature on this misses the point. If it's 10%, it's 10% because we decided to tell people that it's 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 the world's on fire. Yeah. So so right now we're you know it's November twentieth. We're six days before Thanksgiving. Uh, the CDC announced today: don't don't travel for Thanksgiving. Don't go home. Don't um, don't 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 celebrate the holiday. Uh, stay home by yourself uh, and your immediate family if they're around. My mom is eighty eight. She's sitting by herself uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. Thank God she's healthy enough that she can live independently, but we're all worried about her. And she was going to go to Memphis to, our, to my brother and sister for Thanksgiving. We had thought about even joining her there. Um, and now we've discouraged her because this thing, the world's on fire. And and it 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 the part that's strange about this, it feels like because the, the cases are rising so dramatically and the deaths are rising, even though at a slightly less dramatic rate, they're rising. It feels like it's the disease is worse than we thought. Now, it's the same virus, obviously. It's not any worse than we thought. It's, if anything, it might be milder as it mutates. At least we had hoped that originally. But it suddenly feels worse. And people are making decisions based on that emotional reaction. Some people listen to the CDC as if they are uh, coming from Mount Sinai. 
<laughs> the, the mountain, not the hospital. And some people are, are treat the CDC like a clown show that, oh, they don't know anything. They're just a bunch of fake experts. So we're kind of, I mean, you say it's a policy decision, but the truth is, is that we're in a very messy time for, for expertise and, and knowledge. And, and again, as somebody who's somewhat skeptical about overreacting, I, I'm a little, I'm more scared now than I was two weeks ago, uh, for better or worse. I, you know, I don't know if it's the, uh, I don't, I, I'm not reacting so much to the policy environment as to my perception of the, of the data, which is probably a mis- maybe a mistake. No, I mean, I think, uh, look, one of the jobs of public health is to accurately communicate risk to the population. We shouldn't overstate or understate. And uh, so let me just describe what I think of as the huge mistakes that public health has made in the United States and many other countries, actually. So I don't, it's just, it's not, I don't think it's simply the United States. Um, so one, uh, we have given this impression that everyone is at the same risk of death, conditional infection. Uh, what, that's, what, what that led to is my 80-year-old mom is much... I mean, she's, she is a very social person and she uh, absolutely hates not being able to talk with her friends. It's been isolating. She lives essentially by herself in, in Southern California. It's really been difficult for her. It's, it's, she's, she's lost weight. She, uh, like, you know, it was not good for someone that's 80 in that sense. Um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been just a traumatic thing to have to be alone all that's the time. Horrible. Um, so I, I, so that, but, but for her, she, she, uh, you know, I've told her what the risk is, and I think I've done a good job with that. Um, and she can make her own choices based on that. But for many older people, they underestimate the risk because we've told everyone they have the same risk. Whereas for for many younger people, they vastly overestimated their risk. Right. So we've done a very poor job conveying what really people in di- different walks of life what their risk really is. Um, that's and that's a public health failure, right? That's 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 communication by public health authorities. Uh, people don't trust them um, because they've done poorly. I mean, give me, give me give a couple more. Sorry, Russ. You're keep going. Say. No, keep going. Um, so another another failure, I think, of public health. Uh, we should never stigmatize anyone with a disease. And we should not create a sense of shame because you be, had a disease. And public health has done an a- absolutely terrible job at this. Uh, if someone gets COVID, it's because they failed. They, they weren't wearing a mask. They, they, they walked around when they shouldn't have. They did, did something wrong. That kind of stigma does not belong in the public health toolkit. Um, and it's divided people in sort of very distressing ways, right? So you walk around, you see someone without a mask, you think, oh, they hate people. Um, that's not right. We should not be creating a situation where, I mean, you know, ma- mask, the evidence is mixed, honestly. I mean, if there's some evidence that does well. And some, I mean, it's not, it's not a panacea, obviously. You can get sick even if you wear a mask, again, obviously. Um, so uh, we shouldn't be creating this sort of sense of division as a, as, as a public health community around these actions. I mean, they're, they're not, it's, I mean, it's not, don't, I'm not saying don't do it. I mean, you, I wear a mask in crowded places. You know, I, I tell my mom to wear a mask. I mean, I think I'm not against it, but we shouldn't create a sense of stigma around it. We should create a sense of compassion for the people who have the illness. Um, that's really vital to public health or else you end up with a situation where, the, the situation we're in, because um, now it's not just that you get sick. You're, there's a stigma of failure around you becoming sick. Um, uh, so, I th- so there's th- that. And the, thir- the third big failure of public health has been this sort of lack of imagination in how to protect the vulnerable. Uh, we, we essentially we, we've decided that we can talk, when we're going to talk about the Great Pentagon Operation, I can talk more about that in, in some detail. Um, but that is shocking to me because the public health folks I know have d- spent their careers thinking of ways to protect the vulnerable from f- a million other diseases. 
why this one disease, all of a sudden we've thrown up our hands and said, no, we can't do it. Uh, I think that's not right. I, I think there are concrete things we can and sh- should do immediately, actually, to do this. Actually, the vaccine presents enormous po- possibilities for that. Um, uh, but, but I think, uh, I think uh, and partly, I think that's been driven by this, and you've mentioned this several times, Russ, uh, this, this like rise in cases creating panic. The, 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 the thought behind the epidemiological response to this, it has been that if we control the, the number of cases, we can reduce the, the, the risk the vulnerable face. That is an evident failure. Right, that, that the the the, we, the rise in number the, the first we we it's a very 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 difficult or maybe even impossible to control the rise in the number of cases in places like Europe, the United States, and the Americas. Right, uh, the, the the disease is already too widespread. Um, by the way, it's uh, I, I want to just a, a little uh, like side side thing. Um, I don't actually think it's a national condition. I think this is a regional disease. Right, right, yeah, it's bouncing around. Yeah, so right now we're seeing it's like the Midwest, really. Oh, crazy, that's really crazy. where the biggest cases are, right? So it's, it's um, uh, and so in a sense, like, and actually that's true most places. There's a few places where it's come back, but I'll give you an example. Like uh, in Italy, uh, in uh, in Bergamo, where which was the sort of the center of the of this Lombardy as a whole has, has seen a rise in cases in the second wave, but Bergamo itself, that saw a massive first wave, has not seen a very large rise in cases. Um, so I think it's like it's one of these things where like it hits an area. And really hard, and it can come back some in that area, but it's going to come back less, less sort of milder the next time. Um, and I think that's what we're kind of seeing in the United States. It's sort of bouncing, b- bouncing around the country, uh, and it's sort of the Midwest's turn this t- now, unfortunately. Um, so, Go ahead. Do, do, I want to I respond to something you said about the mass, but do, do you want to say something else? Yeah, so the other, the other thing I think that we failed at, the public health has failed at, is it, n- public health normally has d- deeply embedded in it the sense of like... Uh, uh, the Swedes would call it solidarity or, or, or sort of this abhorrence of inequality. Uh, and public health has done very poor job in its, I mean, as, as, as we talked about earlier, it's sort of so- sought to protect the well-off in its public, in, in its de- decision-making uh, about, about, so like the, 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 the lockdowns, for instance, the quarantines, we already said, exempted essential workers, essentially poor. It, it's located, it, in the initial days, it located testing sites in areas where there were a lot of rich people uh, not, and not very many minorities. Um, I think we've we have done uh, as, as public health. We have sort of forgotten uh, something that should be in our DNA, which is we ought to be caring for the least of us, in some sense, uh, uh, as part of our our our, 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 our how we think imme- immediately. And we sort of uh, the least well off. Yeah. When there a piece of evidence on mass? That's, so there was a study that was just released out of uh, uh, Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. It's a randomized study uh, where I think it's about 5,000 people, uh, 2,500 had masks randomly assigned, 2,500 didn't, early in the epidemic when most people in Denmark weren't wearing masks. Um, and so it's a test of whether the mask would protect the wearer, not slow yeah. the spread of the yeah. disease. Um, and uh, if you do that, uh, if you treat that that intervention as if you treated it, it was a vaccine, you'd say it was a 14% efficacy, right? 2.1% of the non-mask wearers got the disease, 1.8% of the mask wearers got the disease. Uh, and, you know, it's not much of a difference, right? It was not, not, well, I wouldn't it, say that. But you said 2 point, what was the ratio? 2 point, 2.1% 2. 2. 2. versus 1.8%. 2.4 2.1. 2.1. Yeah, I, well, it's not so much. 10%. Well, it's yeah. about 14%. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's, yeah. if you do that, if you calculate it the way we calculate uh, sort of uh, vaccine efficacy, it's a 14% efficacy intervention. I, and again, with net massive standard errors, but you know, whatever. Yeah, they. It, but you know, the problem with all these kind of quote tests are that you know they're very specific to certain situations. I, 
this, I think the most appalling bit of evidence uh, on this question came out when that there was a study out of Duke University on different kinds of masks. I'm sure you saw this, and and they 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 announced that the gaiter, the neck thing, uh, didn't help at all. It may have made things worse, and then they speculated on why. And you know, people immediately, you know, my synagogue immediately banned neck gaiters. If you you can't wear a neck gaiter if you're coming to services, it's because it's dangerous. And you look at what bandanas are bad too. Bandanas, bandanas, and neck gaiters. Yeah, and I thought. That doesn't make any sense. And I looked at the actual study, and the actual study, they had one neck gaiter <laughs> made out of fleece, whatever that is. I've never seen a neck gaiter made out of fleece or a bandana made out of fleece, but okay. But it's so uninformative. It, it never should have been – that line should have been excised from the the study. It, it Maybe they, they had all the caveats. I don't remember. But the newspapers ran with that as they have with most of these things. And so I, you know, I think a lot of the ignorance and over- and underreaction both – have to do with the challenging times we're in. And I alluded to this earlier that there's nobody to trust. Um, a bunch of people are trusting. A lot of people don't trust anybody. There's other people who trust people who aren't trustable, aren't reliable. And there's a handful, presumably, of trustable sources that are reliable, and they're being trusted by a very small group of people. I don't know. It's a it's a very um, it's a it's a very unfortunate time. But but to go back to the to the main thrust, you're arguing. That we've overall we've overreacted, we've pushed uh, a set of reactions and actual policies that have tried to protect the population as a whole. That comes with an enormous cost for the least well-off among us, and we should have devoted most of our effort to protecting the most vulnerable. And if we could have avoided, and still can avoid, much of the cost that's falling on poor people. And on people who aren't nearly as vulnerable, is that a good summary? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, the, the only thing I tweak a little bit is uh, is we've we've completely over. I mean, it's, I, I don't think we completely overreacted. I think it's a serious condition. We definitely it warrants a very very serious rea- uh, policy response. So, I, I mean, I, but I think what I'm proposing is a very serious policy response. Okay, so let let's get to that. But I I just want to say you know one more thing. I I got characterized mistakenly as, as somebody who's skeptical of lockdowns. Well. I'm somewhat skeptical of lockdowns. Uh, I can imagine situations where it's the right thing to do. What What is really dramatic to me and, and tragic is the countries that – many of the countries that locked down rigorously did things that were much more dramatic than happened here in the United States, and I'm particularly thinking of Israel. Israel had a very severe lockdown where you, you, know, you couldn't move – a lot of people weren't allowed to literally go outside unless they, they had an emergency or they had to walk a dog – People tried to acquire dogs for that reason, of course, economics in action. But they were very successful. That lockdown really shut down the disease, and everybody celebrated. And they went back to their life, and then it surged again. So they locked down again. And, and I think people think that – and let's pretend there is such a thing as a, as a, as a rigorous lockdown, meaning really works. It's not just a policy. It actually – either because you use the army, as China did, or people are very uh, obedient – they don't go outside. The tragedy here is it's not clear that it has any much effect other than the short run, which is useless. So you only get the costs of the lockdown, the loss of economic activity, and then the loss of, of, of well-being that comes from that loss. And, and then you don't get any of the benefits because all you've done is just, you know, you've, you, you've turned the light off. <laughs> the disease is still there. You turn, when you come out of it, the light comes back on. And it's like, oh, there it is. Head and gone. 
Is that is that what's going on in many places? It's exactly what's going on, Russ. It's exactly what's going on. The the the, the, the math of the these uh, these compartment models is very very clear. You so let's say you have in theory a, a very a, a entirely effective lockdown that stops this s- slows this you know basically flattens it. Um, uh, when you lift the lockdown, the disease is still there, floating around, asymptomatics, and it comes back. And this is a worldwide thing, right? There's, if there's even a little bit of international travel and a, one country has a few cases, you, you know, it's going to come back as soon as you lift it up. Um, and the, 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 the math is very, very, very clear, right? As soon as you lift the lockdown, it's, it, the, the diseases will come back. And the integral over that curve is the same number of cases, that the lockdowns just delay when the disease happens, not, not, it doesn't eradicate the disease. Lockdowns have never eradicated a disease in the history of mankind. What, I'm a little puzzled by that. And of course, some people have argued, I think, rather monocausally without much thought to the fact that the world's a complicated place, that you know these, certain, these countries, fill in the blank, could be um, certain Asian countries, could be Australia, New Zealand. You know, they, they did this right. They figured it out. They've locked down or they've restricted movements. And no, almost no one died in these countries, and the United States should have should have emulated them. So you don't agree with that? No. Well, let's just take New Zealand, right? So I think I think the problem with that reasoning is that it's very clear in that uh, those places when they locked down, there were very few cases around. By February, in the United States, in Europe, and the Americas, that was already too late, right? So the the lockdowns. Um, the theory of them is that you you reduce the number of cases to the point where you can you can do a, a testing and tracing regimen that actually has some hope of capturing all the cases and you get zero COVID. Right, that's New Zealand. Um, they 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 locked down very early, very hard, uh, and they they did a very rigorous testing and tracing program. Uh, you know, there was a little resurgence in July where everyone panicked when there was a few cases, and then they locked down again. Um, and the next time someone comes, and every time someone flies into New Zealand, they're in a 14-day quarantine um, or whatever. You could, I'm not sure exactly the exact policy now, but something like that. Um, and you end up with a situation where you have basically be isolated from the world forever. That might work if you have very few cases to start with. By February, where when President Trump issued this travel ban from China, it was already too late. And it was already too late in Europe. It was already too late in the Americas. Right? It was that that policy cannot work when disease is already widespread. But it, shouldn't it kind of shouldn't it kind of die out? I, I mean, the part that that you know the original idea behind the sheltering in place or the quarantine or the lockdown was was to quote flatten the curve that the integral would be the same, the number of cases and and would be the same, but the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed. And it, there was a logic to that. But I noticed, and I noticed this in my own mind as well. That that made sense to me reasonable idea that, that that you wanted to make sure that you don't not only that you don't kill people who have it because they can't get a hospital bed but the people who have other conditions can't now also have an issue with getting a hospital bed so smooth it out good idea but it was very shortly after the smoothing out idea caught on i started to hope oh maybe we'll just kill it off because if 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 we stay in place for x weeks and it can't spread from person to person then by the time we come out of the lockdown it will be dormant, and I won't, and it won't spread it. Is that not true? It's not true. It's too widespread already. But how is it? How is it going to spread after? If I, let's just take the just a silly example. If everybody with the disease doesn't go outside for two weeks, and they don't have their, or they, is the problem is that there's that even though they're not symptomatic, they still they still spread it. 
yeah, there's asymptomatic spread of this disease. We know that for a fact. Um, so uh, Peru is a good example of this. It's it uh, or, or maybe Argentina. Like they've stayed locked down pretty sharply. Through, I, th- I mean, I think Peru they actually had the military inf- enforcing it, and yet they've seen the highest deaths on the face of the earth per capita. Um, uh, they, they've had, uh, you know, the, the, the disease continues to spread. It's not, it's not like you think we talk about lockdowns as if there's like theoretical thing where we literally just sit shelter in place forever and isolate. That is not how lockdowns actually work. Humans have to interact with one another and those interactions will spread this disease. It's an incredibly infectious disease. It not, it's not possible to get to zero COVID. Well, there would be, there would be if we could all just cryonically freeze ourselves for, for X number of months, but we still have to eat. We have to get to the grocery somehow, or the food has to get to us. Somebody's got to collect the food, pick up the food, drive the trucks. There are these, quote, essential workers who who are going to be out in the world. They have to be. Otherwise, we'll die. You can't literally lock down. That's a, that's a, the real thing, way I understand what you're saying. Yeah, take, take care of cancer patients, teach our kids. I mean, there, there, there are absolutely essential things that have to happen, right? Um, so I think um, I think that 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 uh, it's it's like this shimmer. You think of this like thing that we can't. If we just if we just had this ability to do this, we could. It would would be a perfect world. But economists as, as a whole, I thought, were immune to that kind of thinking. Um, uh, it's just not possible. Like so, I think that that dream of zero COVID has caused so much harm, Russ. Um, we have no choice. We have to learn to cope with this disease. It, it's grim and unfortunate, but we just have to figure out the best way forward muddling through and there really isn't uh and, and promising people zero covid uh i think that uh, a lot of the pathology of the last several, uh, 11 months or 10 months or whatever has been around this 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 they want people won't say it explicitly but they have it in the back of their heads uh, and the and they've they've generated support for these policies that are absolutely devastating we still haven't talked about some of those costs um uh, but but they're absolutely devastating and without but with without any actually any hope of actually achieving the end that they that they that they won't even state out loud no the the implication is is that if 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 you know we'd had a wise uh leader we could have had zero deaths and i think that's kind of a fantasy um we can debate whether how many deaths be a foolish debate, but we could debate how well or poorly the president handled this crisis, and I think he handled it poorly as a leader. Uh, whether he handled it poorly as a policymaker is, a, is I think, a much, much more complicated question. Uh, and he did some good things and some really stupid things, I think. But that's so did everybody else. But that's not. A, we're not going to talk about that. That's not. I'm not interested in that at all. I think at it's all. a dumb debate. I, I think that the leadership is not the key thing. It's the ideas underlying the the the, uh, the the policy is really the key thing. So let's talk about the costs, and then we'll segue from that into this question of how to protect the vulnerable in ways that reduce those costs. So what do you think? The, talk about the costs. So let let me just. I'll, <laughs> so people who heard me have heard this litany. So I apologize if you if you heard me before. But like, let me just align some of them. So just to get some sense of the scope of it, right? So in April. The UN uh, World Food Program, you know, I think the group that, that won the Nobel Prize, the Peace Prize this year, estimated that there will be uh, an additional 130 million people who will die of starvation worldwide uh, this year as a consequence of the lockdowns, right? A consequence of the economic harm from the lockdowns. I, I think the calculations are very simple. It's like, uh, you know, they, if you just figure out what the economic hit is for a poor country, there's some distribution of income, what fraction goes below $2 a day of income or, or something and say, okay, that person's now at risk of starvation. Um, 80 million people thrown into poverty. So we've had, a, you know, I think in the past uh, 20 years, a billion people lifted out of poverty. That's reversed or starting to be reversed. Um, 
uh, again, worldwide, t- tuberculosis, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think up to like a million more deaths because tuberculosis control programs have been stopped. Uh, polio has resurged in Afghanistan and in Pakistan because the, the, the vaccination programs, have, uh, the, I mean, we actually were on, on, par, on, on a track to eradicate polio and that's been reversed. Um, the, the, uh, uh, in fact, Gavi, which is this massive, uh, vaccination, uh, campaign worldwide has, was stopped, you know, MMR vaccines. But is it, is, is that stopped because of a policy mistake or the existence of the virus? It's a policy decision, right? So you decide that the virus is too dangerous to send people out or you don't have the resources. Those are, those are policy decisions. Those, cause is maybe co- is COVID worse than, uh, than measles, bumps and rubella diphtheria. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's one of these things where like, um, we've just decided that, that, that this is the worst condition on the face of the earth. And we're just going to uh, throw up, th- throw aside so many of these things we thought were, were, were also deadly. Um, uh, in the United States, one in four young adults seriously considered suicide this June. One in four, normally it's something like four or six percent, four to four to five percent. It's one in four this, just this past June. Again, now for young people, this is absolutely dev- like lockdowns are a devastating thing. Young people, uh, you know, not me, I, I'm a hermit, but like my, uh, you know, most of the other uh, young people I know that they, they, I knew when I was little, they, they, they all, uh, they all like to interact with one another. Um, and it's psychologically, I mean, I've seen it in my kids. Like they, uh, <laughs> the one success I've ha- had is, is my, my wife uh, and I, we convinced uh, our neighbor to let, let their kid play with our kids during the epidemic. Cause you know, Kids, kids actually are, are very low risk from this, and I don't actually spread it very high. The, the risk in schooling, I mean, our, the U.S. closing its schools is absolutely devastating. It's actually out of line with the rest of the world. You're suggesting that's insane. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's absolutely, it has no, no basis in science whatsoever. Um, uh, the, the, uh, there's an estimate that was just put out in JAMA that because of the loss of schooling uh, in the United States for our kids, they will lose because because schooling investments are really really productive. They result not just in more income, higher income later in life, but also better health. Um, the, the, the estimate is that five and a half million life years lost for our school kids this year. Yeah, I don't believe that at all, Jay. But that's a su- subject for a different conversation. But I, what I do agree with is that the loss of learning, so mostly, and also just the social socializing part of it. it it's you know I watch little kids again in my synagogue. Uh, we're, we are praying in our parking lot, and I watch them, you know, four-year-olds and six-year-olds in masks not getting close to each other, and it breaks my heart. Uh, now, if I had if, – if my kids were younger, they're not, but if my kids were that age, I would – I think I'd probably put them in a mask and tell them to stay away from people also. But you're suggesting that's not good advice? Yeah, the kids, kids spread the disease much less efficiently that for, for reasons we don't fully understand, but it's just an empirical fact. And they die at very low rates from this disease compared to other things that they face. The hard part of that is that, you know, as a parent, you think, well, they die at lower rates, but well, but doesn't matter. I want to make them safe. And, and they, I think it's hard to see those costs on the other side. I would send my kids to school. I mean, my kids face, I told you, my son got flu, right? It's that the flu is more deadly for kids than COVID. Right. And we don't keep, we don't keep, we don't close school in the winter in America. And, you know, I have reason, like I, I saw my kid unable to walk for three days because of the flu, yeah. but the school is more important to him, to him and his life than the, the, the small reduction in the death risk of death from these diseases. Um, just is, I would send my kid happily in person to school today. Um, can I ask, let me ask you a related question. Uh, 
we've gotten the major sports in America have all uh, coped with this in a slightly different way, but generally they've closed their stands. They, they don't have fans live. They've put a bunch of restrictions. Some some sports, uh, basketball actually had a literal quarantine of the players in one space. Other teams, other sports have done more, just more testing. And of course, a lot of football players where they're not quarantined in place have gotten the disease. I don't think anyone's died of it. I don't think no, zero no, died. Yeah, right. No, cardiomyopathy. Uh, you know, I think one one major league baseball player, but he had pre-existing cardiomyopathy. I mean, there, we haven't and, seen the long-term effects. Um, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? I mean, I think I think this. Uh, and and actually, uh, you might ask why why reopen sports? I mean, of course, there's money involved, but there's also like you know, there's a lot of psychological benefits to people from having this. It's part of what life means to some people. I mean, like it, like yeah. it's part of like you know, I don't think it's nothing. Um, I mean, unless the Patriots are having a horrible season. I mean, I, I would have hoped they'd kind of just shut down the whole season this year in football, and I'd be spared a two and five start. But I get your point. My Red Sox were were so terrible. I I, I was I almost regretted. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they shut that thing down? But okay, yeah, no, I agree with you. Of course, the human side of this, the idea that only thing that matters is reducing the risk of 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 disease as much as possible, is an insane idea that only a doctor can love and that an economist, you're right, should rebel against because we understand that there are costs that are not in, unimportant. Like pe- People stayed home from cancer treatment because they were more scared of COVID than cancer. That happened this year. Uh, mammography dropped, I think, on the order of, I think it's like 70, 80% sure, reduction sure. in mammography. People were afraid to go to the hospital. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, just uh, uh, colonoscopy, like no one likes it no, no matter what you do. And then you give people, they say COVID, you might get COVID and all, yet they have this fear, right? Even though they won't. Um, and they won't go get a colonoscopy. We're going to see stage four breast cancers rise rise in coming months. We absolutely will because mammography prevents late stage breast cancer diagnosis. Well, I'm, I'm more skeptical about that too. But again, that's the subject for another thing. I mean, I think there's a, another time. There's a lot of, we'll see. We'll see in the data. It's one of these things like it's a priori. You can't just dismiss it, right? Uh, Agreed. Agreed. We have seen this decline in in uh, mammography. That's fact. Um, what the consequences are? Yeah, it remains to be seen. I I, I believe in mammography. I think I think the evidence on mammography is very effective in in early diagnosis. So I, I think that's why I, I've I've uh, I pushed this line. In any case, you're right. It's an empirical fact, but it's something we shouldn't dismiss out of hand. No, I, I criticize it only because you know the evidence for it. Certainly at, at younger ages is very mixed in terms of actual survival rate. Um, false positives are a huge problem. Intervention is a huge problem that's not effective. But that's a different issue. I think we, you and I agree that there's there are many, many consequences of this reaction that we have uh, – have that we're enduring that are not measurable as deaths yet, that are not trivial. But let's go to – let's get to the, the declaration, which has been um, quite interesting in terms of the reaction to it, and I'm sure you've – had some challenges, which I hope we'll talk about. But lay out what the the I think lay out the centerpiece of the ideas behind the declaration. It's called the Great Barrington Declaration, and at the heart of it is this protection of the most vulnerable. So that let's after you've laid that out, tell us what we should be doing and should have done for the most vulnerable. Yeah. So the the Great Barrington Declaration, the, the it's it's as you said at, at the beginning, it was we I wrote it with uh, Martin Kulldorff, who's a uh, who's a fantastic epidemiologist at Harvard, and Sunetra Gupta, who's probably the world's premier theoretical epidemiologist at Oxford. Uh, and then, then they they you know they agreed to include me, which is uh, still still a, a mystery to everyone. Um, the the um, uh, the 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 declaration basically says that. Uh, 
it, it, it account it basically is a response to things we've been talking about. The, the key idea is that the lockdown harms are worse than COVID for the non-vulnerable. The meaning younger people, people with few, few chronic conditions or whatnot. Or, or, uh, and for the older population, um, COVID is more deadly than lockdowns. We spent trillions. Uh, the, 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 the central idea then is let's, let's spend those trillions to protect the vulnerable. And you can do this. There's some concrete ideas that we put forward, but I, I was hoping that, that, that the public health community would, 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 would engage with this more. Um, uh, and I actually think it's kind of started to have to do so. So one is protect the, the nursing homes. That's the most obvious thing. That's where a lot of the deaths have happened. Um, and there's concrete things you can do, right? So you can test staff members. Uh, if you, if you uh, have a staff, uh, if you, uh, it's actually pretty common for staff members of nursing homes to work in multiple nursing homes. So reduce that from happening. Um, reduce the number of staff members that a, 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 a an individual in a nursing home sees. Um, test visitors. Uh, now you have to balance that with loneliness because that is a major problem yep. in nursing homes. Horrible. Yeah. So you have to figure out some way. And I think actually nursing homes, to my eye, in some places have started to do better. Like we haven't seen the deaths we saw in New York and New Jersey in the nursing homes. That was a really big mistake, right? Sending COVID infected patients back. If you get a COVID infected patient in a nursing home, have a, a ward or, or place where they can be isolated from the rest of the, the, the people. I mean, just simple ideas, PPE. Uh, I mean, all these things are really, really important tools. Uh, not, not all of them perfect, but they, they're, they're useful tools and vital to use in this setting. Um, for people who live at home alone and older, you know, we have these like grocery hour for for older people, but then they still interact with a lot of people outside where they, they're exposed. Why not use the trillions we spend on, you know, uh, grocery deliveries for old people. Yeah. Actually, yeah. you don't even need to wait for the government to do that. If you know old people in the, in the, in your community, go just uh, ring them up and ask them, can I help you with that? Um, uh, the, the, uh, another, another idea, another thing is like, uh, uh, is people who are essential workers that are older and, and at high risk, the 63 year old janitor with diabetes, right. Or the, or the, the bus driver or the Costco clerk or whatnot. Um, why on earth do we decide that the, we can expose them to the virus? That is, that is absolutely, uh, I, I don't know, I have the right vocabulary to describe how I feel about that policy. Um, instead of protecting those people we know to be vulnerable, we, we said, go out and work. You have to make now a choice between, and there are, there are policies uh, and laws in place that we could use to protect them. Like the ADA, we could have declared them a, 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 a disability for the, for the, for the, during the pandemic because they're, you're in this vulnerable class and they could then, then the employers could provide a reasonable accommodation. So the school teacher who's 62 and has, has uh, you know, uh, these preexisting conditions that make them more likely to die if they get COVID, they can stay at home, teach on zoom, help younger teachers with curricula, whatnot. And younger teachers can go teach in person because they face such little risk. Yeah. M- many private schools I think are doing just that voluntarily. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's no reason why that, that we couldn't have used our policy levers to try to do that. Um, for multi-generational homes, uh, it's, 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 it's still a problem in the United States, but it's, it's even more of a problem outside the United States. And like in India, it's a huge problem. Um, it's, it's a lot of the older people that got the disease, got it in multi-generational homes in India. Um, but it, in, uh, in the United States and actually in many, many places, the lockdowns actually created multi-generational homes. Young people lost their jobs and went back and lived with their parents or, uh, uh, and, uh, we, we closed our universities down. We sent uh, a vast number of kids back home to, to live with their, I mean, I actually, I, I personally benefit. I, it's been fun to have my 19 year old daughter yeah, come back home. Yeah, yeah I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I, and I'm ha- happily take the risk, the additional risk of COVID because she's 
going to do 19 year old things. Fine. Um, it's it, but, uh, but uh, you know, we've created this risk. Um, how do you address it? One, stop the lockdown. The lockdowns created the risk and the unemployment and dislocation for lockdowns is in part, even if it's just 10% created this risk. Um, second, you can, you can, um, uh, use testing resources like these rapid antigen tests. One of the major problems has been that we have this like regulatory apparatus that makes it very difficult to get at home tests that you don't have to report to, to the uh, outside. Um, and what's what, you know, you have to go to a lab to go get a test. And the thinking has been, well, let's find every case, test and trace it and go to zero. Right. But that's prevented people from getting tests. I, I mean, I, I don't want to go tell on my friends if I don't have to, I'd rather just be able to tell when, uh, you know, my, if my 80-year-old mom is going to come over, I want to be able to tell if I'm positive immediately on the spot. There are rapid antigen tests that you could do that where you don't have, you, in principle, you wouldn't have to go to a lab to do it. We should make those very, very widely available. And then people could, you know, volunteer. I mean, if they report it, if they're not reported, that's not the essential thing. It's do they act on it in ways that are reasonable for their situation? Yeah, we had. We had Paul Romer on here talking about that. Obviously, not everybody's going to he, – he's been pushing for more tests availability, knowing that not everybody who gets a positive test is going to act responsibly. There will be people who do irresponsible things even with a positive test. But it'd be better to have more people aware of that they're, that they're putting other people at risk. I think risk. that's completely reasonable. Um, and, I, and I, I mean it's a policy decision we made in part because of the, this, this zero COVID aim, right? We, we said let's uh, identify every single positive person and then – uh, work epidemiologically, like isolate them, quarantine them. We've created the situation people don't, don't, the cost of taking a test, it's not simply a medical decision or a personal decision about like, am I going to expose my mom or not? It's now a, a, a huge economic hit. If I'm positive, 14 days without work, right? Uh, or whatever it is. I mean, whatever the, 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 the regulation is in your, in your neighborhood. In any case, it's a huge cost. And then I'm contact traced, so I have to get be interrogated about every single person I've interacted with. And sorry, Russ, I'm going to give you up. Because uh, we talked on Zoom, um, so it's it's just you know it's, <laughs> I mean I think it's one of those things where like um, we ha- we really haven't thought about the economics of it uh, in terms of the incentives it's created um, this 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 testing measure. In any case, I think there's lots of like creative ideas you could do to protect multi generational uh, people living in multi generational. You can make uh, hotels available for someone who's sick inside. That if if, you're, if my 19 year old sick, maybe you allow my 80 year old grandma to, or 80 year old mom to like go live in a hotel for a brief time while, while, uh, while, while she gets better. And then and while, while my 19 year old gets better and then they can come back. I mean, I think there are a lot of policies we could have adopted that didn't adopt because we didn't think about protecting the vulnerable. We thought that only controlling the spread of the disease would be the way to protect the vulnerable. And very clearly that's not true. So that's the, that's the great branch. Of the, the other half of it, and probably you understand, right? The lockdowns are worse than the, than the disease for the non-vulnerable. I'm not saying let intentionally get infected. I'm saying let them live their lives so they don't face the lockdown harms. On net, we're doing them a favor because the lockdowns are harming them more than the disease. So you're saying that if, if we had been more sensible, both in the communication of the risk and the treatment of the more vulnerable, that people who say work as a bartender or a barista or a clerk in a in a small store, those people would still have their could still have their jobs because the people who would engage in commerce, the eating out, the drinking, the picking up something at the hardware store or the grocery, those would be people who were not so much at risk. Uh, they might get the disease, but they're very unlikely to die from it. They might in turn infect the clerk. But that clerk's very unlikely to die from it. And now what we've done is we've said to the clerk, 
We're going to reduce your risk, we hope. In fact, we haven't. But we're going to reduce your risk to what we hope is zero, and you're just not going to have a job, <laughs> which is not attractive. Yeah, it's not, not going to have a job. You're going to face the depression that comes with unemployment. The, there, maybe you'll, you'll miss your health insurance, and now you won't be able to get the cancer screening that you would normally have gotten. Or, you know, there's a million uh, knock-on effects. The, the, the economic harm has these, you know, uh, the, the, uh, results in less trade in, in uh, so the developing countries, the price of ag- food goes up in uh, developing countries, so you get more people at risk of starvation. I mean, there are all kinds of knock-on effects. The economy is not just a simple one, one-off thing. It's like deeply interconnected. Um, and uh, uh, we've seen that, right? I think that's, that's one thing we've learned from this epidemic, how deeply interconnected it actually is. We have a wedding coming up soon in my, in my family. And I don't think my 88-year-old mom is going to attend that in person. I think she's going to watch it on Zoom. And that's, I think, okay for a lot of reasons. Um, can't be as, it can't be as joyous a wedding as it would have otherwise been. So what she's missing is not as exciting as it might have otherwise been. But if she said to me, I want to be at that wedding, I would say, come. Because she's 88, <laughs> She might die tomorrow, God forbid. I, don't, I hope she lives for 10, 20 more years. But, but I would never say to someone, to preserve your life, you should skip every life cycle event in the, for the next X years till we found the vaccine or the things dis- disappeared. And I think the other part I, point I want to make, which I think is you sound horrible when you say it. I'm going to say it anyway because, like you said, we're economists. There are things worse than death. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll say it a different way. You know, we're, we're right now on the cusp of getting a vaccine soon. I'm very excited about that, obviously, because I think we're going to be able to travel again, maybe lead a somewhat normal life. And, you know, but you know what really is unfortunate? Even if there is a vaccine and I take it and it works, I'm probably going to die anyway at some point. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to remember that what, what this vex, what this pandemic has reminded us of is that we're mortal. Right. But we're but it's a weird kind of remembrance of mortality. It's like, oh, I just got to get through this. If I can just get through this this horrible plague, then I'll get to the other side and I can have normal life again. You will, but it's still finite, which is just an unpleasant reality. Actually, it's not even unpleasant. It's just a fact. It's what the, it's how we live as human beings, and and we should live our lives accordingly. We should be we should enjoy what we can. It's all uh, it's all temporary. It's important to live fully. Yeah, we live in the shadow of death. That, but 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 we should live in the light of life, right? That's really the the. Uh, and I think uh, we've been we've darkened our vision with the shadow of the de- of higher mortality from COVID, and we've blinded, we've shuttered the light altogether for so many people. Um, I think that's really the, the the heart of the mistake we made in this policy. So you had the courage to sign this statement, co-write it with with two other people. Um, uh, it was a brave thing to do. I, I want to salute you because I, I, you know, I assume that you've gotten some hate mail, maybe some death threats, because obviously if you think that we shouldn't lock down, you're obviously a callous, horrible, heartless person who doesn't care about uh, human beings. Is that a fair summary of what's happened to you or am I being overly dark? It's generated dark? a huge reaction. I mean, I, I kind of anticipated the reaction. I, I, I say early in the epidemic when I worked on, these seroprevalence studies, I didn't anticipate the reaction. Um, So I kind of wasn't quite ready for that. But this time I was more ready, uh, sort of emotionally, to deal with it. I I don't regret signing it at all. I mean, I think I have this 
position uh, for a purpose. It's not simply just to, to be comfortable and, and have a happy life. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I feel some sense of responsibility to just express what my ideas are on this. I mean, I may be right or may be wrong. And of course it's for folks who are listening to decide. Um, but I mean, I think we all as academics have that responsibility to say what we think. Um, actually, that's, it's been discouraging to me see uh, both economists and non-economists and science, other scientists I, I thought that we were in a liberal profession, liberal in the sense of like open to open free exchange of ideas. Uh, we're not we're not we're not aiming to like destroy one another. We're aiming to learn from one another. I mean, I, I might be wrong. You'll you'll teach me something, Russ, and I'll change my mind. You know, in fact, in fact that's you've done that with your writing all all the way across. Um, so I don't I think that that's that uh, that sense of like humility and uh, sense of desire to learn from one another has been I think utterly crushed in this epidemic. Um, that's been disheartening. Um, a lot of the reaction to the uh, Great Barrington Declaration has been to mischaracterize it as a as a herd immunity strategy, which I, it, I, now at this point I think of as a propaganda term, where the idea is, in fact, you see Dr. Fauci say this, as, a, as it's a let it rip strategy. And if you've been listening to this conversation so far, you can probably see, you, you hear, I don't want to let it rip. That, that is the farthest you know, from my mind. I think the key thing is, uh, let's take the costs and benefits into account very carefully and protect the vulnerable. That's really the key idea of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, to call it a let it rip strategy basically is a desire not to engage with the ideas. And that's an illiberal, uh, you know, like we've seen this um, instinct. It's an illiberal instinct. We've seen this with like uh, the reaction, for instance, to Scott Atlas. Right? Scott's saying some things. He, you know, he may be right, he may be wrong. He's, he has a very, very difficult job advising the president. Um, how do you react to that? Uh, if you think you don't agree with them, well, well, I would as a as as a uh, someone who you know as, as someone who's a fear science, you don't agree. What do you do? You you write okay. Here's here's what I think is right. You don't attack the person, try to get them fired from from, from a place, or or you do, what you do is you just you say here's what the evidence says, and we can have a discussion. That sense I think has been lost. Uh, in fact, there's a there was a move. I wrote a textbook on health economics. There's a movement by some economists to try to get people to to, to boycott the textbook. Because I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, um, I mean, it's like you know, if I write uh, paper A and you agree with it, Russ, and you cite it, then I'll write paper B and you don't agree with it, and then you stop citing paper A as a result. That's harmful for science. All right. No, I agree. I think it's well, I, a lot of it is this tribal moment that we're in in America and in the world. We've talked about a lot on the program, and it, it saddens me des- deeply. Um, I've talked about it before that that the idea that masks are a partisan issue is grotesque. It, it's a it's a it is the the premier proof that we've gone off the rails as a country. That that that's a way we express our ideology and partisanship is whether we wear a mask or not. That is lunacy. It is so sad to me. And here's another example you're talking about, which is we're in the middle of a horrible situation. You're, nobody's pretending it's <laughs> that it's you know, uh, made up, it's horrible, but to suggest different ways of dealing with it than how we have dealt with it uh, cannot be discussed among civilized, thoughtful people in many situ- in many cases. And talk about uh, how the, um, the internet has responded. Uh, you know, I, I've read, I don't know if it's true, but that if you search for certain things now that certain things have been taken down off of YouTube or you can't find it on Google, is that, is that been part of your experience also? Well, I mean, when the when we first put out the Great Barrington Declaration, Google, Google shadow banned it. Google what? 
Shadow Bandit. So if you typed in the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, up, up would pop like 15 hit pieces and you'd have to go to page three or two or whatever to get to actually get to the site. Um, I think they fixed that now in the U.S., but a lot of countries, they st- still have that. Like if you, if you Google it from you know, Slovakia, you'd have that issue. I, I don't know if it's still true, but I think that that, that sort of a fixed itself. Um, but videos of people, prominent people, have been suppressed on YouTube. John Unidi's talking about about this. John Unidi's a very, very prominent scientist here at Stanford. Former guest of Econ Talk, yeah, past guest. Brilliant man, right? Uh, and you know, he, he may be, again, he may be right or wrong, but to not allow people to hear him uh, on YouTube is is nuts. Uh, I think that Michael Yurden just had to put out a, 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 a he's another uh, immunologist and, and uh, infectious disease doctor in the UK just got suppressed by YouTube. Um, I mean, you know, how do you have science if you don't have people who are willing to say something that's different than what everyone else is saying? You just can't have science. You may as well just close up shop and uh, the public uh, sort of mechanisms of disseminating people's views uh, in the modern ones, Google, YouTube, Twitter have an absolute obligation to allow that ha- to happen. And I understand they're private companies and we can talk about uh, whether, right, but if, right. tougher question. Um, but if, if they're private companies, they still have a public obligation given the role they play in American society and world society to allow that. I mean, if, it, it's a very illiberal instinct. I, I think we can all agree, even if you, if, if, even if you think that just that, that private companies can do whatever they want, it's still, a, 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 I would characterize an illiberal instinct to sort of suppress that kind of conversation. Yeah, no, it's deeply, um, it's deeply disturbing. It does raise interesting questions over who should have the right to constrain the spread of information, whether it's private companies, they should be free to do that and thereby damage or help their own brand. Um, but I mean, I'm less interested in the economic uh, fight over competition on this rather than like as a society. Cultural. Yeah, I think cult, I think the, that liberal norm is yeah. the at the heart of, I mean, I'm at a university where the where the motto is let the winds of freedom blow. And I'm afraid that they're not really blowing that hard, that hard anymore uh, here. Yeah. I, I, I think um, I, and I think that's true worldwide. I think um, we're sort of in an illiberal moment. And uh, figuring out mechanisms to get back to a liberal society is going to be very, very important. I'm not sure we can get there from here. Uh, you know, I think there's uh, what's gone wrong with the um, ability and and indulgence in tribalism that I've been that I mentioned earlier is. Um, I'm not sure we can put that back that horse back in the barn. Um, we got a real tough road ahead of us, in my in my view. Let's close and talk about vaccines. Um, what are your thoughts on where where we stand? Again, we're in November. Uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have had very encouraging early results. We don't know what their what their safety is. The efficacy numbers of ninety and ninety five percent. When you look at what they actually are, not quite what the average person thinks of when they think of ninety five or ninety percent efficacy. Uh, it's a really particular technical definition that's to me not so not so helpful. But but they seem to be. There's a lot of optimism about them. Uh, will this if they are available will this change everything uh so yeah i mean i I think they will it depends on how we decide to employ them let's let's take as given uh you know obviously data still haven't come out but let's take as given that they're safe and and very very effective right so just uh, how should we use them will be become become the next question because the key constraint is getting sufficient i think each vaccine you have to have two doses so uh with with operation warp speed we'll have something like enough doses for 35 to 50 million people correct correct um and then we'll have to wait a long time for, for there to be sufficient number for the, the whole world to have it. 
right? So um, the question is, how do we use them? I think the right answer is is the focus protection idea inside the Great Parenting Declaration. We, in fact, if, if if again conditional on on the on us assuming that the vaccine is, is safe and effective in this pop, in these older in these populations, um, you give it to the old the, the the people who are vulnerable. That's effective protection. Now they're no longer at risk from uh, or or such high risk from disease should they get that uh, because they're much less likely to get it. Um, and then then for the rest of the world who are not vulnerable, the disease is less is worse than the lockdown. So it's a perfect tool for focus protection, actually, um, if we choose to use it that way. The other alternative I've seen, and people have said this, is, well, why don't we just wait for wait until uh, we have enough doses for everybody and then open up the world? You know, another six, nine months of lockdown, um, uh, you know, as, as if that were the safe option. It is not the safe option, Russ. That will uh, devastate the, the, uh, the world in even, I mean, in ways that we've already become familiar with, but even worse, because we're already poor as, world, as a result of the 10 months of policies we've adopted. So I think that's the debate going forward, is how do you use that vaccine correctly? I think the right choice is focus protection. And let's close with the next time, because there will be a next time, almost certainly, probably in our lifetimes, more likely in years than mine, but... I'm not 70, Jay. I'm good. I'm fine until I'm, I got four more years. Uh, I really worry. I didn't see funny. The whole thing is like it was 65 for a while was the cutoff when you had to be worried. So I was 65 right, right on the cusp. And then I turned 66 in September. Uh-oh, trouble. Uh, but it is a fairly smooth uh, line as it turns out. It's not a hard cut at a particular age. But let's – this is going to – we're going to get another one of these. And one thing I think is tragic about this whole conversation, national, international conversation, is that um, – Again, for social, partisan, ideological reasons, we have not talked about the role of China as a nation in this. I mean, the president did a little bit, and because it was him, then it went off the table for a whole different group of people. He didn't talk about it well, I don't think, or appropriately. So it's it's just a tragedy there. But the fact is, this disease came from China, as far as I understand it, and we've not been able to investigate um, in an open way why that happened and thereby potentially reduce the risk of it happening again. So that's a separate issue. Forget about that for now. It just really makes me sad and, and maddens me. But but the it will come again, almost certainly. Uh, when that happens, what would be uh, your hope? I, I guess the problem is, is that the profile will be different in terms of who's most vulnerable. And so we can't really generalize until we get the information we need from the beginning. So I guess my personal view is that we've done a terrible job generating the information people need to make the decisions that would, they would make as their own choices about risk. Uh, that should have been a priority. Instead, we have the CDC making pronouncements, which sometimes have been literally absolutely wrong uh, and degraded their own institution. But what are your thoughts on the next time, what we should do um, from what we've learned so far? I mean, it's, it's very clear that our infrastructure for generating knowledge rapidly at a population level is really poor. Uh, in the United States, and actually a lot of countries, but certainly in the United States. Um, I think uh, the, in some ways, science has done really well. I mean, we, the fact that we have a vaccine so quickly oh, is an absolute miracle to me. <laughs> um, I mean, if you ask me, infectious people did at the beginning of the epidemic, how long would it take to vaccine? I said, I, would, I said, you know, several years, because that is the norm for vaccine development. This is an absolute miracle. Uh, um, and, and actually, the other thing, uh, scientific knowledge about this, I sort of underplayed it by when you asked me initially about this because uh, I was focused on my own work. But it's, I should say, 
the scientific the, the 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 science on this has been fantastic. Like a lot of the knowledge about T cell responses, about uh, 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 about uh, um, uh, sort of treatments and so on, has have proceeded in a, a very rapid pace, much more rapidly than I anticipated early in the epidemic. So I think in that sense, we've done well. Um, we've done very poorly in population epidemiology. And that's partly because how we, we, like, for instance, when we track the flu in the United States, we have a few sentinel labs that we get the flu uh, test from, and then we decide that we extrapolate. Um, you know, as economists, we're used to, like, very large-scale surveys to track unemployment at the monthly level, you know, like the, the current population study. Why can't we have something like that for for disease epidemiology uh, and have it be flexible. So you have this massive panel of people that you go to, you can, you can take blood from them or, 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 you know, or, or hair samples or whatever you need uh, as the new diseases come up um, and very rapidly deploy it. Um, I think the other, the other, the other thing we kind of talked about is, is, is this sort of like uh, you have to be very clear about our goals as a, as a CDC or, or, or whatever as public health. Right. So um, the goal has been muddled from the beginning. There's this, essentially this like fight between zero COVID and, and learning to live with it. Um, and, and, and if you don't know what the goal is, you can't have a good policy. I think a lot of the muddle has to do with that. Um, uh, the, the science communication should be absolutely fundamental uh, part of any public agency that's like, like the CDC. Like, so, so for instance, like I just saw uh, uh, director Redfield say that he, the, the CDC never said to close schools. You know, you couldn't have told that from their pronouncements from the, from the epidemic. Um, they've closed, they, 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 they uh, Dr. Fauci panicked the, the country over a relatively rare outcome from a few kids getting the disease. This, this, the, he called it Kawasaki's, now it's called MISC. Um, in any case, th- that kind of mistake is absolutely devastating to trust in public health and also to, to, to public policy outcomes. I think there does need to be reform at the CDC um, and, and in public health more generally. Uh, a to like have better systems of tracking disease, and B to to uh, uh, sort of. I mean, I think economists really should have a role here. Economists that that, that have some sense of like, um, look, there are trade offs to what you're doing, and so there should be someone at the table saying there's trade offs to what you're doing. What is the goal? These these are tools the economists just have naturally. Um, and if, if I ever get my economist card back, I'll, I'll maybe I'll play some role with that. Well, I I. Um... I think I burned mine long ago, but um, I just want to say one thing about pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry because I think it's important. And I don't know if I've said it on the program, but what I have said on the program many times is that – and we've had many guests talking about this. You know, The current way that pharmaceutical research is structured is structured in a way to allow pharmaceutical companies to reach into my pocket uh, and subsidize – marginal, tiny improvements in health at enormous cost to me and very small gains to the recipients of those pharmaceuticals who don't have to pay for them because the way we've set up Medicare and 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 so on. And I think that's a an intellectually bankrupt uh, system, d- dysfunctional. Uh, and of course, with that, we get some wonderful things from the pharmaceutical industry as well. But there are two, to me, we spent, we get very bad bang for the buck for the average pharmaceutical dollar, even though I can see that you can't say what those are in advance, and therefore it's good to try lots of different things. But we've set up an industry where a lot of the things that we do get out of it I don't think are worth what we pay for as taxpayers subsidizing Medicare for all people. Having said that, uh, because we have done that, and and I have mentioned this 
I, ha- I have family in the pharmaceutical business and labs. Um, so I say what I said just a minute ago, well aware that that is bad for their – if my view is embraced, it would be bad for their well-being. Having said that, the large cadre of chemists, biochemists, and the infrastructure of the large pharmaceutical world that we have in the United States is what has allowed this response to happen of nine months into a, a tragic pandemic we have two vaccines, and they're more, and then we're going to have more. I have a feeling, and you know, I, I like to quote the um, the Kipling poem. It's Tommy this and Tommy that, and Tommy wait outside, but it's thank you, Mister Atkins, when the ships are on the tide. Meaning, in England, when you're a soldier, you don't get much respect, but you know, when there's a war, all of a sudden you're important. So, you know, for all my criticism of the pharmaceutical industry, this is a glorious success on their part. I'm glad they're making a ton of money from it, and I hope they do. You know, a lot of voices out there saying, yeah, well, now they found it. They, we should take it away from them because they shouldn't be allowed to make profit from it. It is that profit and the past profit, which I have somewhat decried, which has allowed the stable of intellectual firepower that they have unleashed on this virus. And it's a glorious moment of human achievement, and I hope they make a lot of money from it because they, they should. And then in the future, I think we should scale things down. But you want to react to that? <laughs> Like, let me say something slightly smaller, but I come uh, in line with what you're th- I mean, I, I think um, there's very little incentive to explore uh, small molecules that are off patent. Um, and we, we don't, you know, the NIH in principle could solve that problem, that essentially like that. It's, it's, it's a market failure problem, right? So because uh, no, no one owns them, owns that intellectual property. Um, uh, I, but in, in, but I mean, there, I, I don't know the right answer to this, but like there ought to be like if you think about the the controversy over hydroxychloroquine, you know, it, it's a, a cheap, small molecule. There really hasn't been a ton of evaluation of it. As, as, and there's just been this like huge controversy over it, over it. I mean, this is something where you could answer the question if someone had the incentive to do it uh, with a, with a, with a simple trial. Right. Uh, and there's been a few, but not, not a ton sort of on point. Um, I just, I, there ought to be incentives to, to explore those kinds of ideas rather than just ideas that are on patent. Well, those incentives don't have to come from the government. There's a lot of wealthy people who care a lot about this, a lot of foundations. They could fund these kind of more thorough studies. And I think they're going on right now. I think we'll learn some things we don't know yet from those uh, efforts. So th- there is some hope. But um, it's not a good system right now the way it's structured. Yeah, I agree. You want to close? Take us home, Jay. What do you got to say? What? Um, give me some optimism or something you've learned from this that, that you've grown from. Maybe you're a better human being because you've been beat up. <laughs> uh, your seroprevalence story, which uh, we didn't talk much about in detail. I know you took a, an enormous amount of abuse uh, for that study. Um, Let me end with hope, Russ. Okay. Um, I think that um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, I think that if we adopt good policies going forward, we can prevent a lot of the harm that w- uh, that, that 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 lies in front of us. The the, the vaccine um, is a, a godsend, and we can use it. To, uh, to to reopen society if we choose to do so, um, and I think we and that's so that, that's that's my hope. Like like I think if we uh, if we think carefully about the costs and the benefits, we actually can um, can uh, uh, get back to a place where we can start talking arguing about are the pharmaceutical companies too too rich? I mean, we can start arguing about should it be private? I mean, all those arguments are fun, but here I think we're we're at a cross crossroads of our civilization. We essentially, I think about these lockdowns as 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 the nuclear bomb of 
of public health, of epidemiology. It's like physics coming into fruition with the actual nuclear bomb when it was dropped on Hiroshima. We've dropped a nuclear bomb on society, and now the question is, how do we get go forward? Um, we, we've structured our society so that we minimize the chance of that nuclear bomb ever being dropped again, uh, the physical, literal one. We, we fought a Cold War uh, designed around not dropping that bomb. I think we should do the same with this. That's, that's my view now, and I think we can. We now have the ideas, the technology to, to when the next, vac- next thing happens, um, we'll be in much be- we could be in a much better place if we just choose to do so. My guest today has been Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford University, co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, which we will link to so that you don't have to Google for it. And um, Jay, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.